This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Vong. Join us in our search for a world in which many worlds can thrive. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. For more context, go to pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl And follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. So what I came up against, and I, you might recognize that, when I started practicing nonviolent communication in New York, I had no idea what, what, what I was feeling. The first question is, what are you feeling? And then, what is your need underneath that? And I had never thought about my feelings. And then that is a whole list of feelings, and they were all kind of foreign to me. For this edition of our search for manifestations of the pluriverse, we tune into the layered landscape of central Asturias in Spain. We encounter large-scale extractivist industrial activities and a patchwork of small-scale rural caserias, self-sustainable farms. In every conversation, we sense the remnants of the Franco regime and the civil war that linger on unrepaired. We traveled here wondering if the strong working-class identity of the region with its unions, strikes and hard-fought victories, still lives on today, as the industrial decline that started in the 80s carries on. At the same time, we see that tourism and leisure are becoming an important economic activity and that rewilding is high on the agenda of policymakers, making it food for marketeers who advertise Asturias as a natural paradise. Reality is obviously way more complex than a marketing slogan. Will the workers' culture of solidarity and struggle be the social foundation for Asturias' future? And can this future be a plural future that doesn't deny Asturias' pastoral past and ways of helping each other out? You've been at it the whole morning, I think, no? Oh, just... Uh an hour this morning, I think, and uh, but the knife is not sharp, so that's a bit of a challenge. But also good because otherwise I would have cut myself very deeply in my hand today. And is this um, carving of is it is it a spoon you're carving out of wood? No, this is um, more like a spatula, like for the kitchen or something. Because for a spoon, I would need another knife that can hollow out the the spoon part, let's say. It's super windy, as the listener can hear. We're out on the farmhouse um, grounds, looking over the lemon trees and the orchards. And I'm going to steal Pascal away. <laughs> Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm sitting here with Pascal Gatson in a wonderful, wonderful room of the Paca house. Uh, the room has these hand-painted murals all around. It's a panorama, and you you don't know anymore where is the where the room ends and the view begins. 
We're looking out at a, at a beautiful hill. <laughs> She's saying hi. <laughs> we have a pot of tea and we're ready. Welcome, Pascal. Hey, Sophie. Thank you for inviting me here. Wonderful that you're here with us this week. Garments, Pascal, are the main medium in the collective initiatives that you develop. Um, in both your practice and your teaching, you focus on relational and empowering aspects of fashion uh, and also on cooperative models of production. You lived for a period of your life in New York where you became a founding member of Friends of Light, a worker cooperative for textile production in the Hudson Valley. Um, you've always felt different, you told me, six months ago when we had a, a previous conversation in that time it was for the exhibition In Search of the Periverse in which you took part with the Linen Project. Um, you always felt different and garments um, at that time allowed you to take position in the world as a young person in this world and that brought you into the world of fashion. You became a very successful fashion designer. Yes, you're, you're <laughs> Pascal is now sighing and taking a sip of tea. However, you turned away from that system. You were disillusionized by it and you, you turned away from it. And uh, for this week's Traveling Academy, you contributed to our reader with a, a beautiful text um, on compassionate communication. The text is called Take Back Faction. What you do is that you develop this notion of compassionate communication for yourself and for others. And if I understand it correctly, it's based on nonviolent communication principles that were developed by Marshall Rosenberg. So who is this person and how did you come in contact with this way of, of communicating? We've called it within the curriculum that I developed for the Master Fashion Design at Artes. We call it compassionate communication because the term nonviolent communication raises too many questions because it has this dualism in itself. So we just decided to make it more simple. And, and a lot of people call it connecting communication or there's a lot of words people use to kind of refer to this uh, method of communicating or this method of understanding communication actually. Or, and it's also a strategy of communicating. And I came in contact with it in New York actually because in New York I was very much connected to a more alternative economy kind of scene and, and people who were active in that. And one of my main companions in that was Caroline Woolard. We were really good friends and I learned a lot from her and the different initiatives that she developed. And a friend of hers was called Michael and he... Um, ran or he initiated uh, an intentional, I was interested in con intentional communities. I wanted to kind of research different ways of being in the world that were not based on a capitalist notion of uh, not structuring the social relations in relation to capitalist uh, structure. So in intentional communities means uh, communities that really intend to live together or work together? Or Well, that they do, but the intentional part is that they have, that they intentionally think of how they want to live together and how they want to relate to each other, how they want to relate to work, how they want to relate to labor, how they want to relate to their everyday activities, how they want to relate to the outside. So they create a set of, they, they create group agreements or 
a set of agreements under which they uh, commit to living together, let's say. And on Staten Island, there, the, the one of Michael, I, um, Michael Johnson, um, I went to visit him a few times and he became a really good friend. And they use, he introduced me to nonviolent communication as a method to keep the community healthy. So every morning, or I don't know every morning, but a few mornings a week, definitely they would have uh, open conversations with each other in, in which everybody would share honestly and openly about what was alive for them and they would adjust things accordingly. And for me, that was really because in most situations that I had worked in or that I had been in, things went wrong or I felt powerless in my communication. And I could recognize that there was this impossibility to communicate and that things would break on those types of, of, of moments, let's say. And I also recognized that I had never learned how to communicate in school or anywhere else, actually. And I started to see how important communication was, especially if you want to work with people, if you want to even live with people, which was something that I decided was not my path. So for me, that became really important. I really had a big craving and desire to have the ability to communicate in a much more constructive and uh, connecting way. Yeah. Let's try it out. <laughs> Let's try it out right here and right now, because as I was telling you right before I put the recording button on, I'm feeling, I feel nervousness inside me, but I feel indeed not empowered right now because I, I don't really know what to do with it. Because in the text you say that in the end it's all about needs, identifying needs in ourselves, identifying needs in others. And then finding ways, and, and you write that, that there are countless ways, that there are a lot of creative ways to then meet those needs, if only we can identify them, right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how do we know what is alive in us <laughs> right now? <laughs> well, what I hear is that you're nervous, but that there's also an idea in your head that you should maybe not be nervous. And... Maybe you have a need for more ease mm. and maybe more spaciousness. Yeah, and when you say that, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, my shoulders just dropped. Mm. So there is a space coming into the things because I, I also think that what I need is um, to accept that, that I cannot control the course of this conversation. I scripted it, you know, there's a flow, there's preparation. A lot of preparation that goes into it, but finally now we're here, <laughs> sitting in front of this window, and now I now I it's a sort of um, it's a letting go mm -hmm. that is I think uh, difficult for part of me to embrace. Yeah. So I hear that you have a need for more acceptance of what is, and that that maybe already drops your shoulders and gives you more ease. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what about you? Is there a need on your end? Because I just went through the flow with you and you, you said, oh, that's a lot that you want to cover. That's a lot of ground you want to cover for this conversation. So I sensed a little bit of apprehension 
there, but I'm not sure if that was my interpretation or... Well, I think something else has happened now, because I have listened to you, and by you expressing how you feel and what's going on for you, I feel more softness and more relaxation and more connection to you, actually. Mm. So that's what's, that's what's alive for me now. So thank you. And, and how come uh, when we are uncomfortable with needs inside us or when we cannot read them, this is of course also linked to emotional literacy, which we are also not taught in school, how, you know, to understand which emotions are appearing and disappearing. Um, how come that when we are in, in conflict with ourselves, we shut down communications with others because there is a, a judgment there again? Or well, I think you can... I, you can I think, yeah, I think if you go out of self-connection, I think if you are in your head and have all these, because that's why compassionate communication is also really an embodied language, because you need to, or you need to, you are invited to, to feel and to experience what you're experiencing instead of thinking what you're experiencing. And I think in that connection, there's already a very different relationship to the world as well. Because if we lock ourselves into judgment, we don't have a lot of space for other things. Our, our inner space shrinks somehow. It doesn't become space. very hospitable. No, but as our inner space becomes more closed off, also our relationship to the outside becomes closed off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if I now think that, that this process which is um, super precise super personal super intimate if you had to go through this process with master students co cohorts of master students i don't know how many you had in a in a year um from let's say around from eight to twelve in one year yeah in the in the text you actually quote one student who says i want to fall in love with the world again very beautiful citation it also says something about how how radical this master program must have felt from the inside taking part in it did she fall in love and and how yeah how did it work in practice how did that work out well it's a, it's an intense process so it asked a lot from the participants i think because they really go on a journey and most of them really wanted to go on the journey. This also came out of the application of this specific participant. So she had this desire to re... And she was a bit older, and we have more participants who are a bit older and want to kind of rethink what they have been doing for many years and how do they want to re-kind of meet the world again in, in another way. And in the beginning, it's because we don't give a lot of structure as well. So it's, it's really for the participants to find their own structure, to find what it is that they're really passionate about, and to move away, because you already mentioned that earlier. What we learn as well in compassionate communication is that we have a lot of thoughts in our side of ourselves, a lot of should thoughts, like we should do this, we should do that, 
And it's all these internalized expectations that we've kind of gathered from our parents, from schools, from comparing ourselves with others. So how do we slowly move beyond these shoot thoughts and start to feel where our real energy is and where we get really excited about things, even though we cannot, there's no reason why we all of a sudden love carving spoons, for instance. <laughs> and that's a really beautiful but also precarious process mm -hmm. because it goes... Uh, And this compassionate communication really supports the process of being more in touch with what is really alive in me and what is it that I really want to do. Like this particular participant that you just quoted, she wanted to be an artist and she wanted to, and her, the idea of an artist was be in the Stedelijk Museum or in a big museum and then showing her art. And what she really had to learn was to let go of those types of expectations And really, look, we always started with what do you have available? What's here right now? What, what, is, what, is, what is here and what can you activate? And that's what she started to do. And then her life became much more expensive because it was not anymore about, I cannot do anything here. I, just only, I am only going to be successful if I'm in this one place. And that's such a big burden to carry. Well, there's so many things you can activate here and now that are already available to you. We have so many connections to people. We have materials. We have an environment that's active. We have things happening that we can connect to. So there's so much. We have so much around us. And if we start to tap into that and then start to find our own excitement, then we can very easily continue from there if we always decide to start here again and not over there somewhere where... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a, a super essential process, very very strong also, and yet um, it, you said it also. It's a personal journey, mm -hmm. but set within an institutional frame, right? We are talking about a, a master. By the way, the master was called fashion held in common. In the beginning, I named it fashion held in common because I wanted to make a relationship to something that was larger than an individual who creates fashion. And of course, I was interested in commoning and uh, cooperative ways of working. But that was not something that the participants needed to do. They needed to find their own way. We also had a few participants who really wanted to be traditional fashion designers, and we supported them completely as well. Because I always feel people really need to do what they need to do. And they will then they will find their way because they will come across their own challenges and their own whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And we shifted to practice held in common because the linen project started to evolve. And uh, we had participants that were interested in different fields of practice and not necessarily fashion. And also we wanted to give another message to the outside because From China, we were the only master fashion design in the Netherlands. We attracted a lot of participants, but they were not necessarily suited for the kind of education that we were offering. The notion of common in that title, it, it reminds me of another question that Eric and I had, is that how does this compassionate communication necessarily happen between humans, or can we also develop this practice of compassionate communication for a landscape, for a place like where we are now, Trubia, and this Acaceria, this farmhouse, the landscape that we are looking at that we don't know necessarily because we come here with new eyes. But is compassionate communication something that we can then also 
practice to enhance our sense of place of where we are. When I started practicing compassionate communication, because it's really a practice, and that's why we also call the curriculum practice held in common, because it's very process-based. It's not about outcomes or anything like that. It's really to adopt new habits or habits that are more supportive of your well-being. It just takes practice, and it takes years of practice, and nonviolent communication for sure. So what I came up against, and I, you might recognize that, when I started practicing nonviolent communication in New York, I had no idea what, what, what I was feeling. The first question is, what are you feeling? And then what is your need underneath that? And I had never thought about my feelings. And then that is a whole list of feelings and they were all kind of foreign to me. So self-empathy is really important in, uh, in compassionate communication. If I am not connected to myself, it's very hard for me to connect to you. If I'm well connected and I'm really in support of my well-being and I, 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 I have a lot of needs that are fulfilled, then I have a certain kind of openness. And that openness makes the world more accessible to me as well. And I have a much more mutual relationship with the world because I'm sensitive to all the information that comes in. Because nature is so full of well-being and it's so abundant, it's, it's just amazing. And just to be able to connect to that is amazing. Mm -hmm. And when we're well connected and we are connected and through that connected to, we will not harm the world. We will not harm other species. We would, we would want to be in this kind of mutuality and in this relationship where we both thrive. And I think that's really important. And for me, that's the most important thing with compassionate communication, with meditation, with all these things that connect us, connects us more and makes us more spacious and more at ease. We're much more perceptive. And I don't want to do harm to myself, to my body, only Coca-Cola to myself or to my body and to the things around me that nurture me because I, that, that doesn't support our growth, our, our mutual growth. Mm -hmm. And um, it's September, we're talking, we're mid-September now, so this is the start of every school year, but you will not return to teach because your perspective and, and that of the institution were unresolvable, right? They didn't, uh, they didn't meet. Is that decision to, to stop So to put your ethics, actually, or what you just said, your own spaciousness and well-being, to decide to draw a line there, is that decision somehow linked also to your decision to leave the fashion system years ago? Is there a parallel between uh, what happened then and, and your decision to leave now? When I stopped practicing in fashion, let's say, or doing the, or situating my practice within fashion, that's what I, around my 30th, I started to see glimpses of the system that I was part of and that I had internalized. And I think it's mostly the internalization of it that damaged me or that was not constructive for me. Because I always felt that I needed to prove myself and that I needed to do better. And in the meantime, I always, also had this thought that I was the best and I needed to be the best. So I was constantly chasing this carrot. So that was a very destructive destructive way of being which was supported and nurtured by the system and I myself went to the BFA fashion in Arnhem and it was very much nurtured there as well because there was only one notion of success and that was to be the next big fashion designer 
So I only knew how to be successful in that one way and I didn't know and I didn't dare to explore other ways of, of success because who knows what, where I was going to end up. So that point, it was really about my well-being and I just couldn't, my body refused to continue. And this time I didn't let it come to a burnout. <laughs> but now I think what was really worthwhile at this point in time was that I really, really deeply and in an embodied way understood the conditions of our institutional framework. And I really, really understood that that's not the way that I want to grow. When I came to Artes, there was a very different, there was a different director, there was different, and he had a big vision, and I was given all the freedom to develop whatever I thought was relevant and needed for, the, for future education and resilient. And then we had an interim director, and everything became much more about the institutional framework that was already there. And I don't think I fully understood that when I accepted this job, what, what the implications really were. And I thought I could just twist it in a way that it was uh, more in line in what I believe educates autonomous, responsible citizens. Because that's what, I'm, that's what I'm interested in, to educate active citizens, people who can act from their own agency, from their sense of wanting to participate and then shaping that participation. Because I think that was interesting for me this week as well, that the struggle that was that we spoke about and that I read about in the in the text that you and Eric provided people were struggling a struggle that they couldn't win actually then in the same country like I said last night there's Mondragon and that's where people took their agency and decided that they were not going to be dependent on the government or on big corporations for them to have a job mm. Yeah, Mondragon is the largest cooperative in Spain, and you went there, uh, so you actually went to, to experience it. And uh, last night you mentioned that the founding idea was that the workers are the owners also of the company. Can you detail that a little bit for our listeners who are not familiar with the cooperative as a model? Because you've been working with cooperatives quite a while already in New York, back in New York with Friends yeah. of Light. What, I, what is interesting for me also in relation to intentional communities, intentional communities felt, or the ones that I visited and, and stayed at, they felt quite isolated from the world and they had their own rules and, and they were beautiful constructions now and then. And with worker cooperatives, they still function within a capitalist society and system. But the big difference is, is that the people who work there, so who put in their labor, also own their labor. So they own... The, the, the products of their labor, and they decide what is happening with it. So in a traditional company, and that's even by law, the company has to make as much profit as possible for the shareholders, and the shareholders are the people who put money into the company, so they buy the shares. And so legally, that company is, 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 yeah, has to make as much profit as possible for some abstract person that you don't know. Worker cooperatives, that's the other extreme then, I guess. It's where the, the workers are the owners of the company. And that's also complex because that also means you own the company. So you have to make decisions that belong to someone who owns a company. But you also have to make decisions as a worker. On, on the work floor. Yeah. On the work floor. 
So that's that's a challenging, but at least, and I think what is beautiful about it, and that's also written in all the values and uh, agreements around worker cooperatives, you have to participate. So your participation is necessary and shapes the way the company develops and the decisions that they make. So you cannot sit back and, and blame the boss or blame someone else for the unhappiness that you experience or feel. But you actively have to come up with solutions and you actively have to contribute if you want to be heard as a worker and be heard as an owner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you also said that um, one of the founding ideas was to create jobs and retain jobs. For Mondragon specifically, because they came up in the 50s, 60s, and the same as here, where a lot of jobs were disappearing and people was a lot of um, unemployment. Was that due to a production uh, being sent overseas? or? Yeah, big companies sending production, but also I don't know the economic situation exactly in Spain and I don't know what happened, so I cannot mm-hmm. elaborate on that. But there was a priest, uh, Arismendi, who was very visionary, and he brought together. He came. He came to a small village, uh, Arisate, and he was not very successful as a priest. He was not very charismatic, <laughs> but he had a lot of good ideas. So he stimulated a group of four workers who were laid off at their work for uh, they made. Um, washing machines and those types of things. And it's more heavy industry here as well. And he really talked with them and he encouraged them to start their own company. And that's what they did. And then slowly this, it evolved as a worker cooperative and more people became worker owners. And I think what is amazing, because he also worked with someone who had a lot of uh, knowledge about policy and he had some connections with the government. So they also they created their own bank so that they were independent of the other bank kind of systems as well. And they now are the biggest federation of worker cooperatives in the world. And everybody looks at them, and they've been very successful through all economic crises as well. I think it's an amazing example. And that it's possible is amazing to me. And also what they did, what Mondragon is well known for, is they did a lot of improvements on the work floor, So, for instance, they they let go completely of um, an assembly line because Ford, of course, introduced that and that was adopted by many factories. So they, that's also part of worker co-ops. They educate themselves a lot. There's a lot of education because if you have to make decisions about the numbers, then you also really need to know about the numbers. And people often have rotating roles, so the roles are not fixed in a worker cooperative. Yeah, and their first objective was to create jobs, and their second job was to retain jobs. And that's still the, these are still their objectives, and they're very successful in doing that. As part of a of practice held in common, a linen field was sowed and grown and harvested once, twice, third. I think you're going into your fourth year now. We just uh, harvested a fourth harvest. The fourth harvest now. Um, it's called the Linen Project, and um, it's all about um, the question of if we grow, process, and make our everyday textiles and garments by hand collectively, what are the consequences of that, uh, both for us personally, but also perhaps economically? 
in terms of value change, this this morning uh, when we were harvesting uh, plants with Virginia, you you mentioned the value chain as something very important that you're working towards. And uh, as of 2020, the linen project became also a shared stewardship initiative. As a community first of 30 linen stewards, I think by now it's 46. And you, in our exhibition in search of the pluriverse, we showed uh, a couple of garments that came out of a failed harvest, actually. A beautiful body warmer and a hand-woven jacket. No seams. Beautiful. In this, in this project, how does all this, everything we just talked about in, in, uh, in this conversation, also like the love for making combined with ethics of work, how does all that come together in the Linen Project? I can imagine that there are like moments of joy when everyone is connected and connected to the field and mm-hmm. and there are uh, probably also uh, moments of struggles. I love the Linen Project, but it's not a worker cooperative because it's not a business. And there's a lot of value being produced in the Linen Project and that's really important. And that's what we really, that's also our objective. Well, the first objective we have is to bring linen production back in the Netherlands. But we have no economic objective. We function on a lot of subsidies. It's it's a cultural project, I think. And then culture in a very deep way. So not only culture, also in... And I think that's where the Crafts Council comes in very strongly as well. We, we the, the, it's, uh, the Crafts Council is uh, co-founder of the project as well, together with the program. It's about continuing this culture that we had in the Netherlands, like linen was very important. It was a very important fiber. It's a native fiber to the Netherlands, but also all the knowledge that's connected to it. Because we know that the world is a bit challenged. For me, it's giving people the opportunity to experience the joy of being connected to growing your own flax, to making your own linen. The, the, the level of connection that you have with, with the objects that you don't wear or make is so different than what I've known from before. And for me, that was very present in Friends of Light, where we started to work with farmers in upstate New York. And we wove jackets by hand. And we wanted to bridge the, the gap between the design world in New York and the farmers in upstate New York that are producing beautiful fibers. And there was no connection yet there. And I became connected with Sarah from Buckwheat Bridge and Goras. Uh, and she was a sheep and goat farmer. But really for the fiber in upstate New York, you had a lot of farmers who were really interested in sheep for the fiber, so not for the meat. And they had beautiful varieties of, uh, of sheep and goats. And Sarah just knew so much. And she had a, a mill, a mini mill on her property that was wind and solar powered. And we could just make our own yarns there. And that was amazing for me that... I saw the shearing of the sheep, I saw the wool, I saw the washing of the wool, and then I saw the fibers come into being. And since that, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else anymore. Like, where would I get my materials from after having experienced this? So with Friends of Light, actually, we started, after the wool, we started looking for flax, for linen. So flax is the plant, and it becomes linen once it's spun. And we couldn't find it anywhere in the United States. Mm. Linen was very big because the Irish people brought it over to the United States. 
when everybody immigrated there. But it was big when it was still a hand industry, so everything was still done by hand, which was late 18th century. And when industrialization started to happen, it was too difficult to develop the machines for the processing of the flax. Mm. So cotton won, and of course in the south we had slave slavery. So always economic factors have been determining the way we have developed ourselves, actually, and a lot of people don't even know. But we became we came in contact with a farm in Nova Scotia, Canada. They were a farm that is kind of like a homestead where you do everything that you need for for living. And Patricia, the one the the farmer, she was very interested to grow her own clothes, so she started doing flax. And they started to develop machines to break the flax into the fiber, which they have been successful in. But the spinning, they just cannot and couldn't manage so that was a really good connection so then it really started to become a life for me this linen and uh, flax and how and then moving back to the Netherlands it seemed like very logical to why did it end in in the Netherlands the flax production same reason as why flax and all the production also here stopped because uh, it was cheaper to produce in the in Asia First India, I think, and then the rest of Asia. Mm-hmm. So production moved very quickly in the 60s, 70s. The whole, the whole textile industry in the Netherlands disappeared. How do you then, you know, how how does it still, how does it work to take decisions collectively? Because I think that's maybe a, a parallel with the cooperatives, is that also in a cooperative they must have uh, methods in place and uh, ways of taking decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, this week, for example, on Monday evening we arrived and uh, Eric and I were doing our best to go through the flow, but it was kind of you know, branching off all the time and taking forever to talk you through <laughs> the program of this week. And you made uh, a request to um, uh, stop the program at nine in the evening instead of 10. You said it, it will really help me if you uh, if we could stop the program at nine. And in that moment, I thought, oh, yeah, this is such a good way of um, proposing an amen- amendment to a collective script, which is this flow, right, that we propose to you. And also later in other moments of collective discussions, we checked if there was consent, you know, if there were any objections. Um, is that Are those the tools that you work with also within the Linux project? Like with 46 persons that are perhaps not um, economically co-owners, but that I guess all feel part of this project. I think first I need to make a distinction between the linen project and the linen stewards. So there's the shared stewardship, and that's an initiative that the linen project has initiated. And the shared stewardship is its own autonomous group. Mm. And the linen project, of course they're part of the linen project, but the linen project is mostly Wilhelmine Ippel from the Crafts Council, It's Joan Den Exter, who's an independent freelance fashion designer or consultant. 
And Melanie was the, up till now the coordinator of the linen project and then me. So the four of us were managing the linen project as a, as a project and next steps. And that process was very organic always. And people take actions and questions come from the outside and we respond to it. And we have weekly meetings and we say this we can do now, this we cannot do now. Who wants to take on this? Who wants to take on that? And if something is, if doesn't feel right, someone expresses it, explains it, and then we decide together what's going on. And if one wants to take it on or someone, or we all think it's not a good idea anymore, or we do think it's a good idea, but maybe it's not this person, but that person. So that goes very organically. And with the shared stewardship, we actively introduced consensus decision-making as a method. And that's a method that's, different from democratic decision-making because in democratic decision-making there's, let's say, two choices. Are we going to eat white or uh, wheat bread tonight? And then uh, if six out of the ten people say we want to eat wheat bread, then it's going to be wheat bread and the other people have to eat white bread. If we do consensus decision-making, then... So every person has a say about what is important to them. You talk as long as you... And maybe we end up eating pancakes in the evening because someone cannot live with the white bread, someone cannot live with the wheat bread, and in the end we're going to make buckwheat pancakes, I don't know. And everybody can live with that decision. So you talk as long, and it's very important to hear the margins, so the marginalized for the voices that are maybe not the most popular voices, And I've seen it often that those voices changed the decision 100%. Mm-hmm. Because in the beginning, they seem like an unpopular voice. Oh, do you have to say that? Does it be and then they start to make an argument. And then we think, oh, we didn't think about that yet. Maybe that's really important. So the, the beauty of consensus decision-making is that people really have to step up and be part of the conversation. It's really creative because this the A and B choice didn't work, so we have to think of another choice. And then often creativity flows and we come to a choice that we none of us had expected. So it's actually a really beautiful process. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very alive and it takes a lot of time and that's annoying for a lot of people. <laughs> so I think that's the biggest struggle maybe. Mm-hmm. The level of patience people have with with decision-making. And and also, I think, that's what we came to in the in the shared stewardship, now that we had a few iterations. It's, it would be helpful for us to have a group agreement already made in advance that you then discuss and don't start over again completely from the beginning every time. So we're learning a lot about collective processes and what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes you have to let go. You cannot put everything so tight and kind of want to have it talked through completely sometimes that's not productive yeah, yeah. so it's yeah it's a lot of learning constantly yeah. <laughs> and, and pascal because the focus of the linen project might shift for you because you until now were i think four days a week uh, implied in the in the curriculum in the master curriculum The Linen Project was something that kept you busy on the side, I imagine, and at night, and etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but that focus might might shift. So, do, does a part of you already sense, like, what is next? Where is Pascal mm-hmm. today, right now? 
Well, I think the biggest quality of the Linen Project and how it evolved in the past four or five years is that we, that all of us had, had a substantial job on the site, let's say, and we did the Linen Project in its own pace. So we never thought, oh, this is where the Linen Project needs to go and we're going to force it in that direction or we're going to do everything to put it in that direction. We always went with how things arose. So if an opportunity arose, we thought, oh, that's nice. Or an insight arose. And that's how the Linen Project has developed. So it has never been visionary in the sense that we thought, oh, we need to move there and this is how we're going to get there. It's always been kind of spontaneous and kind of uh, organic and go with the flow. And I hope that I've learned from that as well for my own life, to have more trust and confidence and kind of see where that takes me. Yeah, because th this morning you were telling me that it's been doing really well, the Linen Project. So it maybe didn't have, you know, set objectives on the horizon, but by keeping to its own rhythms, actually may, probably by virtue of mm -hmm. uh, growing at its own rhythm, or, or Chiara's Garamella, one of our other participants this week, she calls it coming to fru fruition. By virtue of that, actually, it's now maybe where it is, and um, you are busy also at the moment looking for partners who would really want to uh, be part of a, of a different understanding of, of value chains, of what kind of value we actually produce when we when we work on things, in this case, when, we, when you work on, on flax and, and linen, so. Yeah, so it's the value chain that's uh, around production, the production of goods or things that people will use, that, uh, and now the value chain is very fragmented, and of course all over the world. And we would love to see the value chain. So the value chain is, starts with the farmer, that grows the flax, then it's the processing of the flax, then that's in Holland, that's Vanderbilt, and then it goes to a spin facility somewhere in the world, and then it goes to a weaving facility somewhere in the world, and then it kind of, some middleman buys, middle woman buys it back, and then it goes to, I don't know where it goes. And we want to have complete transparency, but also awareness of the skills that each of the partners brings to the value chain of production, and also sharing the risks and the, the, the joys, let's say, of, of the production. And the challenge is that it's way more expensive than, than more tradition or the value change that we got used to, actually. Because um, not so long ago, this would have been a normal price to pay. But in the meantime, since H&M and Zara, the prices have been going down so incredibly for textiles and garments. Mm. that we're not used to those types of prices anymore. How much does a yard of uh, the linen collective cost? Yeah, so we, from the 2019 harvest, we have spun the yarn in uh, Poland, actually. That's the nearest buy. And it's woven by Enschede Textilstad. So we offer it now so that people can experiment with it, and it's really a, a tool or a means or a strategy for us to find partners. In the, in the value chain that are more connected to the market. And uh, it's going between 26 and 75 euros a, year, a meter. A meter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a lot. 
But yeah, it's, it, it, it requires some rethinking of the value chain, how it functions and how um, overhead is being calculated and how it's distrib distributed in the value chain. So those are questions that we're really going to think about. And maybe even policy in the end, because we also are very much connected to the, the transition that's happening in uh, agriculture at the moment. This is very much connected to it. Of course, that's mostly focused on food. But we think fiber will be as important in 10 years from now, for sure. Mm -hmm. So we want to contribute to that transition as well. Yeah. But also, I guess, this value chain also influences like our own idea of what we wear. You're wearing a, yes. a beautiful suit. You also arrived with this suit. It somehow rem reminds me a little bit of Robin Hood. I don't know why. <laughs> It's a white, I'll try to describe it, a white top shirt linen beautiful some beautiful seams and then a pair of shorts which you wear i think with woolen leggings under no is that it yeah and the shorts are a little bit more off-white than the top well this is bluish and this is off-white and this is maybe beige beige this is more the natural color of uh, of linen i mm. think but these are all antique uh, fabrics And I have one short with me, actually, that's made of the fabric that we've grown ourselves. Antique fabrics with which you've recomposed or re... These are, yes, I, I reconstruct. Mm. Everything by hand. I really enjoy making clothes again, since I've decided that I don't need to use the machine at all anymore. And wooden spoons, which mm. you also do by hand. Yeah, that was very unexpected. <laughs> that was the only thing at offer to learn how to make spoons. I wanted to continue with making furniture, actually. And now I love carving spoons, but I don't like cooking, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Pascal. We did it, we did it. Good, 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 we did it. <laughs>